The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That last forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my foundation Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome again to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to take a look at the central claim and the cornerstone to Christianity. We pointed out that even outside Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an issue for which the answer for each man, woman, and child bears eternal consequences. Since the stakes are so high, each person owes it to themselves to carefully examine and weigh the evidence before making a conclusion. We began by identifying 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. In part 1, we discussed the presumptive fact that Jesus was crucified and Jesus died. In part 2, we addressed the fact that Jesus' body was placed in a known, accessible tomb and that Jesus' disciples were scattered abroad after Jesus' crucifixion. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty three days after his death and that a large number of the disciples, both separately and together, said that they saw, touched, and ate together with Jesus 
after his death. Finally, in part two, we began to see how each of Jesus' disciples were psychologically transformed after his resurrection. In this episode, we continue our examination of the remaining 12 presumptive facts regarding the investigation and exploration of Jesus' resurrection. We resume with a look at presumptive fact number 8. After the reappearance of Jesus, the disciples were psychologically transformed. James and John were brothers and the sons of Zebedee. Like Peter, they worked as fishermen. They had fiery temperaments which eventually gave rise to Jesus naming them the sons of thunder. It seems that there may have been a bit of a bout of overconfidence and presumption on their part, demonstrated by the incident recorded in Matthew, where they seek to be placed at Jesus' right hand when he established what they thought would be a political kingdom on earth. When Jesus queries whether they are able to drink of the cup that he will drink, they quickly respond with fleshly bravado, believing that they could. Despite such aspirations, both James and John fled quickly when Jesus was arrested. James, called James the Greater, or James Major, or James the Elder, was temperamental, seemingly dual-natured, vehement in his indignation, once fully aroused. He had a fiery temper when provoked, but was also quiet and taciturn. However, James was the first of Jesus' disciples to be arrested and beheaded for his faith at an early stage of the church, possibly because he was one of the most outspoken disciples. John was arrested and imprisoned several times and reportedly boiled in oil unsuccessfully. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos for a period of four years. With all of this, after walking with Jesus for a lifetime, the Son of Thunder earned a new nickname, the Apostle of Love. Mark was the son of one of the Marys who followed Jesus. He was a cousin of Barabbas and of Peter. His mother was apparently a person of great wealth. It seemed that Mark was always in the background surrounding events of Jesus' ministry as early as the wedding of Cana. Mark was eventually one of Jesus' 70 disciples. It is thought that on the night that Christ was betrayed, it was Mark who followed after Jesus, wrapped only in a linen cloth. When seized by soldiers, he fled away naked, leaving the cloth behind. It is not until after Jesus' death and resurrection that we really begin to hear about Mark. Despite being somewhat in the shadows early on, Mark emerges as an established helper to Barabbas, Peter, and to Paul. He gives us one of the Gospels named after him. He was eventually martyred horribly in the streets of Alexandria for his testimony of Jesus. Philip is believed to have first been a follower of and to have been baptized by John the Baptist. However, after receiving his personal invitation from Jesus to follow me, Philip immediately did so. During the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tested Philip by asking him where he could buy bread for so many people. Philip replied in a naturalistic fashion, saying that eight months' wages would not be enough to buy each person one bite. During the Last Supper, Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, demonstrating that Philip, 
as many others, had not yet grasped the fact that, as Jesus informed him, he that has seen the Son has seen the Father. Like all the other disciples, despite witnessing this and many other miracles, Philip abandoned Jesus upon his arrest. After Jesus' resurrection, Philip was stoned and locked up in prison. Philip continued preaching in Phrygia in Asia Minor and was martyred there at Heropolis. Bartholomew, also named Nathaniel, was introduced to Jesus by his friend Philip. Despite Jesus being presented as the Messiah of the Old Testament prophecies, Nathaniel did not believe until Jesus revealed having seen Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree when called by Philip. Like the other disciples, Bartholomew heard Jesus' teachings, witnessed his miracles, yet deserted Jesus upon his arrest. Afterwards, he was stoned and locked up in prison. Bartholomew was a missionary along with Philip and Thomas. He is said to have preached the gospel in India, Laconia, Mesopotamia, Persia, Phrygia, and Armenia, where he was martyred. Andrew was the brother of Peter, both of whom were fishermen. Andrew also followed John the Baptist, but followed Jesus when John announced that Jesus was greater. Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus. It was Andrew who was present for the multiplying of the loaves and fish. Looking for food for which to feed the multitudes, Philip notices a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. But being a realist, Philip asks, What good is this for so many? Again, despite this miracle and many others, Andrew deserts Jesus at his arrest. In his latter ministry, it is believed that Andrew went to the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains, present-day Georgia and Eastern Europe, While there, he preached to the Scythians as far as the Caspian Sea. He also went to Byzantium, which is present-day Istanbul in Turkey, and from there to Greece. In fact, he traveled to Thrace in Macedonia, down through the Corinthian Gulf to Patros. It was in Patros that Andrew was martyred. Thomas, also called Didymus, the twin, was a skeptic. He was a dedicated but impetuous follower of Christ. When Jesus announced his intention of returning to Judea to visit Lazarus, Thomas responds, saying to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. During the discourse before the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples that they know where he is going and how to get there, referring to his ascension to heaven. It is Thomas who raises an objection, saying they do not know where Jesus is going, nor do they know the way. Like the other disciples, Thomas deserted Jesus during the crucifixion. Despite listening to Jesus' teaching and seeing all his miracles, Thomas demanded physical proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. Like many atheists and skeptics of our day, his faith was based solely on what he could touch and see for himself. Accordingly, when several other disciples report having seen the resurrected Jesus, Thomas demands with incredulity, saying, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas travels to the east coast of India, preaching relentlessly. 
He is killed near Malipur, near present-day Madras. James, also called James of Jerusalem, was a half-brother to Jesus. James grew up in the same household as Jesus and doubtlessly heard Jesus preach and was familiar with his claims to be Messiah. Despite this and the fact that James was aware of one, if not more, miracles performed by Jesus, James was not a believer and gave no honor, respect, or credence to Jesus' claims. James must have known about Jesus' run-ins with the Jewish religious establishment and also the local authorities. James would have been informed of Jesus' arrest, trial, punishment, crucifixion, death, and burial. Life for James, especially during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, would have caused enormous strains for him in the synagogue, among his friends, and in the community at large. James was either forced to ignore, tolerate, or deny Jesus and his claims. The end result was that as a result of James's attitude, Jesus was forced to comment in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, that a prophet has honor, except in his own country, and with his own kin, and in his own home. It was not until after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus appeared bodily to James that from this point on, James became an ardent follower and believer in Jesus and his claims. One can hardly imagine a scenario more difficult and impossible than for James to become the pastor of the Jerusalem church where he boldly proclaimed that his half-brother, Jesus, was the long-awaited Messiah and God in the flesh to the very people and in the very place where Jesus made his claims and was crucified. Yet, despite this daunting task before him, James did so and went on to write one of the New Testament epistles which bears his name. James continued in his faith and mission for 30 years until he was stoned for his belief by order of the high priest of Jerusalem. Jude, also known as Judas Thaddeus, was a brother of James the Less and a relative of Jesus. He faithfully followed Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teachings, but abandoned Jesus nonetheless. After the ascension of Jesus, Jude traveled about preaching the gospel. He propagated the faith in Christ at first in Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and Adamia, and later in the lands of Arabia, Syria, and Mesopotamia. Finally, he went to the city of Edessa. There is also tradition that St. Jude went to Persia. Jude wrote a gospel letter which bears his name to recent Christian converts in eastern churches who were under persecution. Jude preached in Mesopotamia, Arabia, Adamia, and Syria and was martyred in Beirut. Matthias was also baptized by John the Baptist where he met Jesus. Matthias loved Christ and followed the many journeys and miracles that the Lord performed. Jesus chose Matthias to be one of the seventy disciples, seeing his purity of soul and zeal for the Lord's work. Matthias was not there at the time of Jesus' arrest, but it reappears after the resurrection, whereupon he is selected by lot to replace Judas Iscariot as an apostle. Matthias suffered many trials in the name of Christ. He preached the good news to the inhabitants of Ethiopia and Macedonia, where he was martyred. Next, we come to presumptive fact 9. 
The resurrected Jesus was central to the early church's message. Now, frankly, I don't think there is anyone who is arguing against the reality that the success or failure, particularly of the first century church, stood or fell on the veracity of Jesus' resurrection. First of all, the entire Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 forward until the close of the Old Testament is filled with the promise, prophecy, and eminent expectation of a Jewish Messiah who would deliver his people from their sins. This expectation was alive and well in Jesus' day as vocalized and proclaimed by John the Baptist whose mission and message was to prepare the way of the Lord. As was pointed out in an earlier episode entitled, Who Do You Say I Am?, Jesus made specific and repeated claims to many, clearly identifying himself as the Messiah and as God. The various enemies of Jesus' day persecuted, prosecuted, punished, and put to death Jesus based largely, if not entirely, for his claims. Every apostle, evangelist, and follower of Jesus made repeated statements, references to Jesus' crucifixion, death, and most importantly, his resurrection. The resurrection was and is the foundation, launching point, and basis of the Christian faith. Paul the Apostle summed the matter up succinctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Quote, And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Unquote. This proclamation by Paul represents a tantamount admission that from the outset of the birth of Christianity, it was clearly understood that without the reality and truth of Jesus' resurrection, the Christian faith, the Christian church, was a complete waste of time as anything other than a social club whose central theme was a myth. Yet Paul was making this and other claims that Jesus' resurrection was a fact to an audience who had the ability to do accurate historical fact checks. Presumptive fact number 10. The phenomena of the resurrection was central in Jerusalem where there were still first-hand witnesses of the facts who were still alive as the movement began. Jerusalem was and is the capital for the Jewish faith. The strength, vigor, and zeal of those invested in the religion of Judaism was centralized in the same area which was ground zero for the birth of Christianity. There was a large population of people who would be adverse, if not hostile, to the message or movement which would undermine the fundamental vested interests and political aspects of the Jewish faith. Those who persecuted, prosecuted, and put Jesus to death remained alive and well in the area as the Christian movement was alive and well as Christianity took its first steps. Those who knew and witnessed Jesus, both pro and con, also remained alive and well in the area. As a result, any attempt to make exaggerated or fraudulent claims regarding Jesus, whether it be of his life before his death or the events surrounding his resurrection, would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible, given the immediate knowledge and familiarity of the target audience with the facts. Thus, 
if someone was going to invent one or more facts about Jesus' resurrection, or if they were going to pretend there was a resurrection when there was not one, then one would expect the scene for creating such an event would have been some small, isolated, obscure location where fact-checking was less possible. Instead, we have a large group of people making consistent claims about an event which took place in the most unlikely, challenging, and demanding locations possible for the given message in question. Presumptive fact number 11. The church was born and grew as a direct result of the resurrected Jesus. The birth, life, and growth of the Christian church, past and present, owes its existence and success to the central cornerstone message of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. A Jesus who made claims but was dead and buried would not suffice to sustain the church. A Jesus who died, was buried, went missing, and was never seen again would be worthless. A Jesus who reappeared after crucifixion, wounded, half-dead, maimed, and disfigured, who only lived a few weeks after regaining consciousness, would be a complete failure. Only a physical appearance in bodily form by an alive and vibrant, strong, powerful, unscathed Jesus would have the necessary impact to transform so many for so long despite persecution, arrest, trial, suffering, torture, and death. Finally, presumptive fact number 12. Saul of Tarsus was converted from a Pharisee who actively persecuted believers to being the chief proponent and apologist of Christianity. Saul, later named Paul, was a Jewish Pharisee. By his own account, he was a fervent believer and adherent to, in the strictest sense to every aspect of Jewish law. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul describes himself, saying, quote, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless, unquote. In other words, Paul states that he had the necessary pedigree and family heritage to qualify for the stringent and rigorous requirement of being a Pharisee. Not only was he simply sitting in the congregation content with having been admitted but because he was so very zealous of Jewish law, he was commissioned with the job of being one of the first prosecutors of the Christian church. In Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, Paul recounts his early life, saying, quote, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, Yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye are all this day. And I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women." Unquote. In verse 20, Paul remembers, quote, And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, 
I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him, unquote. So at the beginning, Paul was admittedly one of, if not the greatest enemies to be feared by the Christian church in its infancy. It was Paul's job to locate, apprehend, prosecute, and abolish any and all who preached or promoted the Christian faith, which was an offense to the Jewish religious establishment. He had the financing, power, and authority to effectively do the task he was given. He knew firsthand the fate of those who became Christians. He had also doubtlessly experienced the prestige and reward of those who were lucky and successful enough to become respected Pharisees. Yet, knowing and experiencing the good, the bad, and the ugly of both, Paul ultimately cut ties with the rigid religious beliefs of Jewish law, which he had practiced his entire life, and chose of all things to become the greatest of all apologists and practitioners of Christianity. Paul did this at a time when the consequences, fate, and punishment of Christians was most precarious. Under such circumstances, one would have to have enormously powerful and persuasive motivation to make such a diametric change in one's life. As we examine the veracity of the resurrection, each of these presumptive facts has its own compelling force of argument. However, we must remember that cumulatively, these and others combined set an even more profound stage for a question which virtually jumps out and demands to be asked. What event or events triggered the impetus for such transformational changes? It's an important question. Consequently, the next question which we will examine in this series is, what theory best fits all the above presumptive facts? Until then, this concludes this episode. Please join me for part four of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in